In the 1960s and 70s, a man named Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, he was a pastor in Romania. And in those days, Romania was part of the Soviet bloc. And uh, so there was a lot of persecution for Christians in that day. And so he was routinely arrested, interrogated, uh, beaten, all sorts of things. On one occasion, uh, one of his interrogators put a gun to his head and said, renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. And Joseph's son told him, he said, your greatest weapon is to kill me. My greatest weapon is to die. Because if you kill me, I will be a martyr and God will raise up an army of people to take my place. And those that are followers of Christ will redouble their commitment to Jesus Christ. And so he understood very clearly, he saw very clearly that suffering for righteousness sake is a powerful tool in the hand of God. You and I may never be in a situation anything like Joseph's sons, and yet the issue is really the same. Do you and I realize that when we are mistreated for our loyalty to Christ, that we have a unique opportunity to imitate Jesus Christ and a unique opportunity to show people the gospel of Jesus Christ? The principle we're going to be exploring today from 1 Peter 3 can be stated this way. Suffering well, suffering for the cause of Christ, can provide our greatest opportunities to share him with others. A couple of weeks ago, Sam taught from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. It's a passage that challenges us to be like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble, laying aside insults and retaliation. And as Sam mentioned, if these qualities characterize our lives, if they're really evident in our lives, other people may just be intrigued and interested in knowing why we live the way that we do. Today's passage, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, builds on that passage, and it describes how we should respond when people mistreat us, when people insult us, not because we've done anything wrong, but because we've done what we understand to believe the will of God. He begins in verse 13. He asks a rhetorical question. It's 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And so he asks this rhetorical question to point out that generally speaking, people do not harm you if you do what's right. Generally speaking, if you feed the hungry and if you help the poor and if you you comfort the distressed, people will admire you. People will respect you. And this is a commonality that we have with people without Christ. There's this common morality that most people throughout the world in all generations uh, affirm. If If the witness of our behavior is strong, people might also be able to hear the witness of our words. That's a theme in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.12, Peter wrote, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And so it's our behavior, that's the first thing people notice, so that when they observe your good deeds, they might glorify God in the day of visitation. And so the shared sense of what is good is a bridge between believers and those that don't yet know Christ. And so generally speaking, people uh, people affirm and they respect you when you do good. However, beginning in verse 14, Peter acknowledges that sometimes this is not the case. Sometimes people will mistreat you for your good behavior. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. 
and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Peter's careful to say it, isn't he? He's pretty nuanced here. He's careful to say that you don't always suffer for the sake of righteousness, but if you do, you will be blessed. In other words, the favor of God will rest upon you. You will have this sense that God himself is pleased with you. And Jesus taught this. Remember, Peter followed Jesus. He heard, Peter, he, he heard Jesus say in uh, Matthew's record in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here in our community, we don't experience violent persecution, do we? And that's the grace of God. We, we don't experience what, what many, many Christians do around the world. And so the opposition, the resistance, the insults that we, we might get are fairly subtle. Uh, for example, a business associate may not appreciate you demanding that you do what is ethical, even though it's going to cost you money. Uh, or you might, uh, with, with a good heart, initiate a conversation about Christ with a friend. Not because you're pushy, not because you're arrogant, not because you're judgmental, but because you care about this person. You want this person to experience the life that you've experienced. And yet, they might react with this, this tired, old stereotype, you're just being judgmental, you're just being narrow-minded. Or in chapter 4, Peter's going to mention that some people are surprised, they're genuinely surprised that you don't participate with them in the way of life you used to, you used to, to uh, indulge. And in such cases, you might find yourself excluded from certain groups or from certain friendships. And so there, there may be fallout in different ways uh, by simply doing what you understand to be the will of God. At the end of verse 14, Peter quotes from Isaiah 8. And I want us to just look at that passage briefly. Israel had legitimate enemies. There were armies at her border. But God had promised that one day he would deliver them. And so to Isaiah, God says this in Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 11. He says, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say, It is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear, nor be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. And so he said, instead of being consumed with conspiracy theories, and instead of fearing what the people fear, these armies that are at the border, he said, Isaiah, you should fear the Lord. You should acknowledge the superiority of his authority and of his strength. Instead of dreading what they dread, you should dread, in a sense, being an enemy of God. And so, in an ultimate sense, the safest person in the world is a friend of God, is, a friend, is the person who sides with God every chance he or she gets. And Peter makes a reference to this passage in Isaiah when he writes at the end of verse 14, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The man I mentioned a few minutes ago, Joseph Son, he embodied this. He did not fear those who could merely kill his body. He had a fear of the Lord that, that was, was uh, paramount in his life. And so Peter urges us not to be afraid of the threats other people made. He said, don't even be troubled by them. 
And it's kind of fascinating in Scripture. We have a degree of, of uh, influence on whether or not our hearts are troubled. We tend to think, well, I can't help it if I'm troubled. Well, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here he says, do not be troubled by them. Instead of fearing other people, verse 15 tells us, in essence, we should fear the Lord. He should be our main concern. He says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And the term sanctify means to set apart or to revere uh, to sanctify Christ as Lord is a command to, make, to give Jesus the place of highest honor in our hearts. And Scripture describes the heart as the command and control center of our lives. We live from the heart. Proverbs uh, 4, 4.23 tells us, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, from the heart, flow the springs of life. And so we all live from the heart. Since Jesus is Lord... We should regard him as Lord in our hearts, in the place where, from which we live our lives. And so to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts is to say, Jesus, I give you the highest place of honor in my heart. You have all authority over every single area of my life. Uh, you have the right to give me hard assignments. Uh, you have a right to say to me anything I need to hear. Jesus, you are always gracious in what you give. You are always just in what you take away. And so that's the attitude of someone who is sanctifying Christ as Lord in their heart. And when, with Christ having first place in our hearts, Peter adds, always being ready to make a defense of everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And if you're thinking in your mind, nobody's ever asked me that, keep that thought, keep that question. We're going we're to talk about that later, why that might be the case. But Peter's laying out the scenario here where people actually ask, what is the deal? What is the deal with you Christians? How do you have such hope? How do you have such joy, even though you're mistreated, even though things aren't going your way? It's so striking that they ask you, okay, explain this to me. I'm, I'm clueless here. Tell me what's going on in your life. And the pronoun there is you. He says, ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you or among you. Uh, the, the implication is it suggests that people notice the hope that they see among believers. And so our common life together is supposed to be so intriguing that people actually ask about it. They, they see it and they want to know it. And so this is one more reason why our unity matters. And it, as you know, in the Bible, hope is not merely staying positive. It's not just being optimistic about the future. Far from it. it it's, it's much deeper and much more substantive than that. Uh, in the Bible, it, the hope is this conviction, this confidence that we will not always be living in exile. We will not always be strangers and sojourners, uh, the, that one day God will rescue us and he will make all things new. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
that is uniquely suited for God and his people to inhabit. And this is sometimes called the consummation of all things, and it, it begins with the return of Jesus Christ. And if we have this hope, uh, we won't be passive. We won't be disengaged. As a matter of fact, we will be zealous for good works because we understand that this life is this relatively short period of time. It's a unique opportunity for us to represent Christ and to, to show him off to people who desperately need the life that only he can give to them. So Peter says that when people ask about the hope within us, we should be ready to explain ourselves to people. And we get the term apologetics from the word Peter uses there for make a defense. And I'm reluctant to say that we should all be proficient in apologetics because it, it kind of in our day has this connotation of this academic, this intellectual exercise. And there's a need for that, okay? Some of us, some of you need to be able to defend the faith philosophically, historically, in, in all these different ways. But Peter's talking about something that every believer should be able to do. Every single one of us should be conversant about the hope that is within us. We should understand why we aren't, aren't torn apart when things don't go our way, why we don't despair when people oppose us, why we look to the future with absolute confidence that Jesus will one day remake everything. And so he's talking about our experience with God. And this begs the question, when people look at your life, do they see this? When people look at our life together, is this what they see? Do they see us joyful and confident even though we're suffering? Do they see anything different in our thinking, in our emotions? in our, our actions? Do they see anything different in us than they see in the rest of the world? When people enter into our presence, whether it's here on Sunday morning or whether it's our life groups or whether it's our home, do they see something distinctive about our relationships and the way we talk with one another? Are they intrigued because we don't grumble and complain, because we aren't shocked that we don't get our way? or we don't believe that we have a right to have an easy life. In other words, uh, thinking about the overall message of 1 Peter, do they see us as people who know how to live in exile skillfully and joyfully, confident that our exile is only temporarily, temporary? Well, biblically speaking, uh, hope in the midst of being mistreated is the norm. It's not, it's not the rare exception. That's the norm. Jesus taught it. James taught it. We see it in Acts. It, you find it throughout the New Testament. And that's why our, our passage in 1 Peter 3 tells us that suffering well can provide our greatest opportunities to share Christ with others. When people see us having joy, when they see us having hope, even when we're mistreated, they may just be intrigued enough to ask, what is up with you people? What is the deal? And this is something we learn in community with each other. And so this is one reason why we need to be careful how we have conversation with one another. Are we feeding each other's anxieties? Are we feeding each other's lack of contentment? Or are we encouraging one another Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross? Are we actually encouraging each other to imitate Christ in our suffering? And so this is what we learn in community. And this is what we show to the rest of the world. And Peter adds that we're supposed to explain our faith, quote, with gentleness and reverence. That word reverence might better be translated with respect. And so Peter tells us that when and if we have the opportunity to explain our faith, the way we speak should be an asset and not a liability. In relationships in general, if we have gentleness and if we have respect for other people, they want to hear what we have to say. If we're harsh and condescending, it doesn't matter if we are righter than right, they will resist it. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And so the way we speak should be an asset. This past week, I heard about a a grad student at K-State. She was here a few years ago. She was from South America. And uh, she came and she started her degree program. And after she'd been here a little while, she came to faith in Christ. And when she came to faith in Christ, her convictions changed in some significant ways, uh, specifically her convictions about marriage and about human sexuality. And when, when her convictions changed, that put her at odds with some people in her department. And apparently, she was just naturally a very confident, articulate, passionate person. And what she had to learn, apparently, was not to provoke people, not to pick fights with people, but she learned how to ask questions and engage in dialogue. And so through her gentleness and through her respect for other people, she developed relationships that were profitable, that gave her the opportunity to bear witness for Christ. Look at verse 16. Peter urges us to persevere in good behavior, confident that one day we will be vindicated. He says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And in the Bible, being put to shame doesn't mean that you're, you're simply embarrassed. It means that you are defeated. You see that in the Psalms quite regularly. And so Peter is urging us to live with the confidence that the enemies of God will one day be defeated in shame. And so instead of fearing their threats, we're to keep a good conscience before God, knowing that one day we'll be vindicated. And in light of the the reality that those who are, are faithful to God will be rewarded and those who oppose God will be judged, Peter writes this in verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so, it's not always, but if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If we have to suffer unjustly in this world, Peter says, so be it. It's better to suffer for doing right in this life than to suffer in the next life for doing what is wrong. And so that's the vision, this, this life, this witness we have when we suffer unjustly. And I want us to take our time remaining to engage this life of witness and, and explore what it might, might mean for us in our lives and in the life we share as a community. And uh, I want us to consider three questions that mirror the progression we've seen in this, this passage in 1 Peter 3. And so the first question is this. Am I experiencing hope and joy in the midst of my suffering? Am I experiencing hope and joy in the midst of my suffering? 
And so I know I'm being Captain Obvious here, but I just have to say this, okay? If you and I are not experiencing countercultural, genuine, biblical hope, nobody's going to ask about our lives. They're not going to be intrigued. They're not going to be interested. And so I would ask you, do we experience hope and joy when we're mistreated as followers of Christ? And just generally speaking, as James 1 says, do we count it all joy when we count counter various trials? Do we experience joy when we suffer the things that are common to humanity? Illness, loss, broken relationships. Do we have joy in the midst of it? And if you can't answer that question, uh, do an experiment this week, okay? Just notice your response this week when you feel snubbed or when you feel that you've been insulted or when you simply just don't get your way. How do you respond? Honestly, when I notice my reaction, people don't always see it, but when I notice my heart, I am shocked at how petty I am. And I'm shocked at, at how I react far out of proportion to whatever offense that I, I have perceived. And so notice your heart. Notice your reaction. And so hope and joy, these qualities are the byproduct of sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. It's only when Jesus is Lord in our lives that we're able to suffer as he suffered. And so periodically, it's good for every single one of us to just, just come before God and ask the question, God, is there any area of my life that I have not submitted to, to your lordship? Is there any area, is there any relationship, any domain in my life that I've not submitted to your lordship? And if he points out something to you, that's when you enter into this, this lifestyle of repentance and obedience. And, and I would just say this, this as well at this point, is that if you're in a tough place right now, if you're especially discouraged, if this is a hard time in your life, uh, don't hear me saying, snap out of it. Don't hear me saying there's something deficient about your walk with God. That, that's not necessarily the case. We all experience tough times, times of struggle, times of discouragement. And I would just say to you that persevering through this tough time and trusting God through this tough time that can become part of your witness, something else that magnifies the grace of God in your life. And so, am I experiencing hope and joy in the midst of my suffering? And then ask the question, am I living an appropriately transparent life? And that's a good question because it's possible to have joy, it's possible to have hope and cover it up and mask it so that nobody ever sees it. The consistent teaching of the New Testament is that we should live a transparent life, one that puts Christ on display for others to see. And so Jesus said this, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. People are supposed to see our good works. That's Matthew 5. In Matthew 6, he gave this qualification, this warning. He said, don't show off. Don't just try to impress people with your righteousness, your uh, giving to the poor, you're praying, and you're fasting. If you're just trying to impress other people, you've got it. But God is not impressed in the least. And so there's a tension here, right? And so there's a, there's a, there's a tension. But nobody's going to inquire about our hope unless there's an appropriate degree of transparency in our lives. 
And our transparency with those outside the body of Christ is really an extension of our transparency with at least a few others inside the body of Christ. And so if you never talk about what God is doing in your life with other believers, it's highly unlikely you will do so with those who don't yet know Christ. But if you learn to talk about your faith in a natural way, and you can learn how to be appropriately transparent with friends and acquaintances, then it can be a great, a great uh, witness to other people. And so this will look different for different ones of us, depending on your stage of life, depending on your interest, your temperament, all sorts of things, your gifting. But here's an idea. You know, as I look around this room, I see so many of you are involved in so many organizations and pursuits around town. Uh, so many good works. And so it might be your involvement in the foster care system or in the fit closet or in Relate 360, or Life Choice Ministries, or Ministries to Veterans, Thrive, uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And so here's an idea. When you talk to your friends about these things that you do, home care and hospice, when you, when you talk to your friends about these things that you do, what if you not only describe the activities, but what if you share with them this is actually why I do this. Maybe you, you share Matthew 25, Jesus told this parable. And he said, when you, you, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And so maybe you share, actually, I'm, I'm doing this as a way of serving Christ. Or maybe you talk about the grace of God that you've experienced. God has shown me so much grace. He has showered me with grace that I don't deserve. It is my privilege to, to lavish grace upon other people. So do you see it goes beyond just doing your good works, but actually being transparent and letting other people see your heart. And this type of transparency might require deeper relationships than you currently have with people. You might be, need to begin cultivating honest friendships. People don't like to be projects. People like friends. Honest friendships where eventually you get to the place you're able to share your heart. You're able to share your life. And over time, your appropriately transparent life can bear fruit. And the final question is, when people notice, am I ready to explain this hope to them? And so people may not come out and express it the way we read in First Peter. Tell me about the hope I see within you. They may not ask that, but they may say something like, you know, I really respect you for how you serve people. I really admire you for, for what you're, you're doing in our community. And at that point, you need to be ready to explain the hope within you. It's, it's an opening. It's a door. It's an opportunity. And so one of the most strategic things that you can do is to learn how to share your story in terms of what God has done in your life. In this way, we give glory to God. We don't glorify ourselves. We say, well, I serve because I'm just, a, quite honestly, I'm a big deal. I'm a pretty amazing person. So no, we don't point to ourselves. We say, you know, God has done this thing in my life. God has, has lavished his grace on me. He's made me a new creature. This is who I am. And this is the life that you can have as well. One of the exciting things about this life of witness is that you don't have to be flawless. Uh, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to have everything all together. You mainly need to experience God, and then you need to narrate that. You need to be a witness. You need to be a first-hand, give a first-hand account of what God has done in your life. 
And so this, this involves the good times and the tough times. And this is the will of God for every believer. And this is the way that a community is reached for Christ. This is the way a nation is reached for Christ. This is the way the world is reached from Christ. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the remotest parts of the world. And so it's all based on what we can give a firsthand account to, our witness for Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we invite you to, to do this work in our lives to where we are people that absolutely love to talk about our faith. God, would we be people that actually have hope and have joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, when people oppose us? And God, would you give us this life, and then would you give us relationships and opportunities and a willingness to tell people about you and what they see in our lives? And God, we all know people that, that so desperately need you, and we, we can see it. Uh, you have put us in their lives for a purpose. And so, God, we pray that you would do this deep work in us, that you might do a deep thing through us. And so we submit ourselves to you, and we anticipate you answering these prayers in power, perhaps even this very week. And God, as we give tithes and offerings now, we do so as an expression of our love for you. God, everything we have is a gift from you. And so we return a portion now with thankfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.